Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the latest edition of the New Books in German Studies podcast. I'm Darren O'Byrne, and today I'm joined by Professor Noah Strutt from North Carolina University to talk about his latest book, Lions and Lambs, Conflict in Weimar and the Creation of Post-Nazi Germany, published last year with Yale University Press. Noah, you're very welcome to the podcast. I'm very happy to be here. Before we come to the book itself, um, I'd just like to ask you to maybe tell our listeners a little bit about who you are. Uh, about your career and your research interests more generally? Sure. Uh, Well, I'm currently Associate Professor of History uh, at North Carolina State University, as you mentioned. Uh, Before that, I earned my PhD at uh, University of California, Berkeley. I I did that PhD, um, finished that in 2011. And so this, I mean, the, the book that came out last year and that we're discussing today uh, really is a, a product of my dissertation. Uh, the dissertation was started roughly 2005-2006, so smack in the uh, George W. Bush administration and the Iraq War, and can kind of continued on as I worked on the book uh, into the Obama years. So I, th- I think that um, in many ways, the research questions that I asked were a reflection of the political moment. So we can get into that later. But sure. <laughs> um, The book is called Lions and Lambs. And the way I see it is you're trying to reappraise common assumptions about post-World War II reconstruction in Germany, uh, West Germany, or or the Federal Republic, as it's also known, uh, about how and why it became a a model of of political and economic stability and more or less an open and tolerant society. But could you say first a little bit about what you're reappraising? In other words, how has Germany's post-war image as a a rock of stability in Europe, as you say, um, how has that been traditionally explained? Sure. Uh, well, there are a couple of different explanations that people have given, scholars have given for how Germany made this dramatic transformation uh, from a society that was riven by conflict and economic instability and political instability in the interwar period to yeah, what I call a rock of stability in the post-war period, it continues on really to this day in Europe, at least relative to other European countries. Um, the, there are two main explanations that have been given. One is the Americanization thesis, let's call it. And this is uh, especially popular, of course, during the Cold War itself and in the years just after the Cold War, when 
American political scientists and pundits were waxing triumphant about their victory in the Cold War. Uh, and that and that thesis basically runs that after 1945 and the defeat of the Nazis with the American occupation of part of the Western zone, Americans helped do two things. One is to introduce new ideas about how to run a stable liberal democracy, including how to structure an economy uh, that's based on a free market, uh, and also teaching Germans how to behave uh, in a liberal democracy. So this, um, and this was the language that was, that was used at, uh, in the 1940s and 1950s, uh, teaching Germans democracy. So this, is, this was one, this was one uh, common explanation. It's a little bit less common now, um, but it, it, it structured a lot of the, uh, of the image uh, and the understanding that Americans had of post-war Germany. Um, the other, the other explanation is a little bit um, broader than that, and I, I'll call it the the Westernization thesis. So it was a, the, the the idea being that it wasn't just America that came in and taught Germans, but rather it was the utter defeat of Nazi Germany and the shock of that defeat that convinced Germans, the majority of Germans, that they had been misled by Hitler and it, that it was time to finally uh, uh, convert Germany into a Western, a fully Western nation. This is something that Germans had resisted in the past, um, saying that they wanted to chart their own path into modernity, so-called Zonderweg, a special path that would be different from the Western countries, you know, France and uh, Britain and the United States. But the shock of 1945 convinced Germans that it was time to fully move themselves into, into the West. Uh, I, I, was, I would say that those two explanations really have been dominant since 1945, the Americanization and the Westernization thesis. Uh, so my my contribution is to look a little bit deeper, and I I, I, I thought that what was lacking in those two explanations is it it, it strangely left out the all of the ideas, all of the conflicting visions for the German future that people had in the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, those ideas and visions didn't just go away after 1945. So I, th I, I, I set out to really hone in on the actual conflict groups that were fighting against each other in the 19. 20s and 1930s, and really see how they resolve those very important conflicts. Um, because I, I, I had a hunch, and it, and it uh, proved correct, 
that post-1945 stabilization of German politics and society was based on a fundamental consensus on ideas and values. And it wasn't, it wasn't uh, the value of the West, and it wasn't the value of America. It was something different. It was something particularly German. And, um, and that's, that's really what I, what I zeroed in on. Yeah, your, your analysis is very German-focused, but I just want to come back very briefly to something you said there a moment ago. Um, you talked about the American explanation um, and how Germany was, in a way, held up as a success story, and that, in a way, it was modeled on uh, the American model, as it were. But you said sure. that that is less, ex that, that's less used as an explanation today. I was just wondering, do you think that that's maybe a, reflect, a reflection of maybe America's own lack of confidence in its present situation? It's a great question. I, I, I tend to think that it, it does have something to do with that. And I think that in the 2000s, and my book is, is, like I mentioned earlier, also a product of the 2000s, there was a breakdown in confidence uh, about America's moral leadership in the world, um, about the ability of America to spread its values of liberal democracy, and really the the value in spreading those things, uh, and, and it's tied it's tied up with the post 9/11 world and 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 the Iraq wars. So. You know, I, I do see myself as part of a generation of scholars that criticize that post-Cold War triumphalism. There's no question. So, like you said, you're looking for the answers, um, or the roots, rather, of Germany's post-Nazi Germany, post-war stability in the period of the Weimar Republic. Um, and in a way... I, what I love about the book is how it sort of, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but it sort of creates a, a, a longer narrative that these are, aren't really two separate periods, but in fact that the successes of after 1945 can in actually be traced back to the conflict of the pre-1933 period, the pre-Nazi period. And before I come to the issues themselves, maybe if you could just explain very briefly, why was it so hard for individuals uh, when talking about really difficult ideas, why was it so difficult for them to, to reach a consensus during Germany's first democracy? Sure. Well, if I, if I had had the time to do a multi-volume uh, analysis, I would have even gone back further. Wow. Because really, I think that the roots... Um, I don't love the metaphor of of, of trees, but I, the, the the roots of conflict in the interwar period do go back to the 19th century, and really to the very formation of Germany as a unified nation state in 1871. What happened in 1871 was that a number of different German states came together, originally in a military alliance, 
to form this unified nation. So, it was, so there was a plurality of different types of people coming together for the first time politically. Now, this was a very, very difficult process of trying to create unity out of this plurality. And the way that the largest and most powerful German state, Prussia, did this was through a top-down model, really um, an authoritarian model that would suppress uh, dangerous conflict within this body politic. So different visions for how Germany should look moving forward were emerging in this period after 1871. Uh, one important one was German socialism, Social Democratic Party, which was the largest socialist political party in all of Europe. The authoritarian state tried to suppress various movements like it, unsuccessfully. And really what happened, uh, and I, I, the list goes on and on, different, different uh, movements, but really what happened after 1918, after Germany lost the World War and a republic uh, was, was founded, was that these divisions really came to the fore. Now that there was true political liberty, and the Weimar, the Weimar Constitution, this new Republican Constitution that was uh, that was written in 1919, was one of the most democratic constitutions of the of the post World War One era. Now that these political liberties were available and the conflicts could be expressed, it became very difficult to. Um, to square the radically different vision. So, so I'll give, I'll just give, should I give a couple examples? Yeah, go ahead. So one of the most fundamental uh, conflicts, and it's, it's the conflict that I start the book with, chapter one, was a conflict in how the constitution itself should be interpreted. And really the issue had to do with the separation of powers. The constitution was very vague on a particular point and that, and that point was the relationship of the judiciary to the legislature. The constitution did not spell out explicitly whether the courts had the right to strike down laws passed in the legislature. In other words, what, what we call you know, judicial review, constitutional judicial review. And this became so important because the legislature after 1919 was mainly dominated by the socialists who set out to pass uh, what they called social legislation, laws that would advance the rights of workers. Um, the judiciary, on the other hand, was filled with men who 
had started out their careers in the pre-1914 era under the German Empire. They were mainly bourgeois. They were um, some of them upper class who were quite concerned with the progress of this new social legislation, really what amounted to the redistribution of property in Germany. So uh, a conflict very quickly broke out over this this question, and the, the judiciary was pushing for constitutional judicial review with the uh, socialists in the in parliament in the Reichstag were adamantly against it were fighting tooth and nail against it and it couldn't it couldn't be resolved uh, the, the the conflict dragged on for uh, a number of years 10 years never got resolved and what it did and what this fight did mainly I, I I argue is that it created a kind of crisis of confidence among the German population in its elites because Germans looked around and they saw uh, legislators fighting against judiciary basically the, the the elites of their country not being able to form a consensus on this key issue. Um, and and I kind of go through and in chapter after chapter showing that this conflict was not the only one. That there were also fundamental conflicts about how Germany's economy should look like, um, how German schools should educate their youth, whether they should be training young people to uh, think of their country first, extreme nationalism or whether they should be training young people to think internationally, to think about the reconciliation of, of nations and a commitment to international law. Um, I go through about, about four different, fun, what I call fundamental conflicts in the interwar period. You do so, however, as much, by, as, much as you look at ideas, you look at some of the chief proponents of, of those ideas. So it's, it's also a collective biography as much as it is a, a history of, of ideas. And you've already mentioned the debates about the independent judiciary, uh, which were carried out um, in your book between Ernst Frenkel and Gerhard Leibholz. Can you maybe say a little bit about uh, Wilhelm Röpke and Oswald von Nell Brüning, whose competing visions of how the German economy should be run during the Weimar period um, would have later ramifications for what came about after 1945? Sure. So uh, you're referring to uh, the second chapter, yes. after I go through the constitutional crisis, uh, the second chapter is about visions, competing and conflicting visions for the German economy. Uh, Wilhelm Rupke, uh, you mentioned he's, and I, and I should say that each each one of my chapters, for listeners, each one of my chapters uh, looks at uh, two figures who I, I think are representative of the of the conflicting visions. So I, I, really, I thought that was that, that was a good way for readers to be able to follow along an incredibly complex story, mm -hmm. right? If you, if you have two representatives of, of, of the com conflicting visions, um, you can really get into the, the nitty gritty of it, get into the weeds uh, without losing a sense of, of, of narrative. Um, so Wilhelm Rupke 
was a young economist in the 1920s. He started uh, he started his career after World War One, and he, like many of uh, Germany's young liberal uh, economists, saw the future of Germany dependent on the opening up of the markets and the introduction of a freer economy. Wilhelm Röpke became known as one of the, um, the most important neoliberal or ordo-liberal economists of the 20th century. 1920s, he was, he was a young man uh, identified as a rising star. And he thought he was up against something quite difficult because not only had Germany traditionally had um, an economy that was that was not based on free markets. I mean, um, going back to the late 1870s, really the first decade of German unification, uh, Otto von Bismarck had introduced high tariffs, uh, really um, participating in the trade wars of the late 19th century. Um, then moving into the post-1918 era, uh, the socialists, as I mentioned, were in power. And he, you know, amidst the economic instability of the 19, early 1920s, the the inflation especially that that culminated in of course the hyperinflation of 1923 Rupka's remedy was to really look to the, the United States he was a a great admirer of the uh republican administrations of post wilsonian america uh to look to the United States, but not not imitate it completely, but kind of uh, look to its model of a free economy. Well, meanwhile, a conflicting vision of the German economy was emerging and getting much more popular, and that um, was was really coming out of the Catholic Church. I mean, it's kind of surprising for uh, maybe surprising for some listeners to learn that. Catholic ideas about the economy were really all the rage among a certain class of intellectuals and pundits in 1920s Germany. Oswald von Nelbreining was one of the leading economic thinkers within the German Catholic Church in the 1920s. He would later go on to, uh, at the end of the, the decade, um, draft the you know, major message on the economy coming out of the Vatican itself. Um, so his his idea was to have an economy that was much more organic. That was the word that was often used: organ- uh, organic economy that would not be completely free. That would be based on a fairly strong regulation of the market to ensure fairness 
Uh, and I won't get into all the nitty gritty details, but these these two visions uh, felt to many as irreconcilable. And kind of jumping forward a little bit, the the and I think it gets to one of the main arguments that I have about the growth of Nazism, not just the collapse of de- liberal democracy in Germany, but also the growth of Nazism, is that when Hitler came to power in 1933, his approach to the economy was kind of an innovative synthesis of these two conflicting visions. Um, Much of the Nazi rhetoric about the economy was drawn directly from the Catholic language and the Catholic uh, visions. Um, at the same time, the Nazis were also integrating some kind of insights from Rupka and and other young liberals. So um, I think I'll stop there. <laughs> was would I be wrong in saying because when I was reading your book and I was reading about um, the Catholic, uh, what's called solidarist vision? Solaris, how do you pronounce that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I guess you would say solidarity. Solidarity. Yeah, it's not, it doesn't roll. It doesn't roll off. No, not at all. It? <laughs> it's, it's it's quite. I mean, there are socialist elements to it. Would would I be fair in saying that? I mean, it's sort of a more of a collectivist ideology, or looking to protect certain certain people. A, a more. You're talking about the you're talking about the Catholic. You're talking about the Catholic vision. The, the Catholic vision, yeah. Yeah, I, I I wouldn't I wouldn't say socialist because that that's not their language. Sure. And I'm very I'm, I'm very I'm very adamant about about using the language that people wanted to use themselves. They would have said social. Social. Okay, sorry. They would have they would have said social and they, and and after World War II they continued to say that. Right. Right. Um they continue to say this is this is a social vision for the economy, always to distinguish themselves from a socialist of vision of the economy because and 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 for the catholics i mean yes empirically your the, the your question is is spot on because empirically many of the catholic suggestions for the for structuring the economy were not so far off from particular suggestions that socialists real socialists themselves had but Catholics were um, were quick to differentiate themselves linguistically because they consider themselves completely anti-socialist in the overall world view that they held. Nothing was nothing was disconnected from anything else. So visions for the economy for Catholics is also connected to a vision of how to structure the school systems, how to structure the state's relationship to the churches. And because the, because the socialists had in their platform a strict separation of church and state, mm. for, for, for Catholics, this was, a, this was a non-starter for cooperation with the socialists. Of course. Um, so, but, this, but it's true that... Um, they weren't so far off in terms of economic visions. In fact, in the 1950s, Oswald von Neubreuning, 
remained uh, an important economic le- uh, thinker and leader of the Catholic Church, uh, was willing to cooperate with socialists on economic uh, policy. Um, only once the socialists started becoming less uh, anti-Catholic. <laughs> sure. Fair enough, I suppose. Um, sure. This chapter, I think, on the the roots or the, the, the pre-Nazi Germany debates about how the economy should, should be run, and particularly the emphasis on different Christian visions for how that economy should be run, I really think that this set the tone for one of the major themes that appears again and again in the book, and that is Christianity as a means of overcoming divisions within Germany. Um, And that was not just limited to the Weimar Republic, when obviously those visions were never really overcome, um, but also would form the basis of the post-war consensus after 1945. Another theme that I want to address is this question of, of... minority rights, because it fits into this post-1945 issue of Germany becoming a a relatively open and tolerant uh, country. Can you explain what was the debate um, before the Nazi period about how Germany should treat its its cultural minorities? Sure. So... Let me just start out by saying that when I when I when I began research on the book, I never thought that the theme of Christianity would would be so prominent right. in my ultimate narrative, because um, I thought of I thought of Christianity in 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 Germany as waning in importance over the course of the 20th century mm-hmm. i saw you know christian democracy as you know, one political movement among many mm-hmm. in germany it happened you know it happened to be the party of of uh, the first chancellor after world war 2 and it happened to be the most popular party up to the present day you know the current chancellor angela merkel's party but I really didn't. I didn't know the extent to which the political rhetoric of Christianity um, drove so much of the transformation. So, in, to get to your question, the the interwar period um, debate on Christianity had, was intimately tied up with uh, what you note um, was. Um, uh, had it, it was intimately tied up with the question of of minorities, uh, and really one one minority in particular, and that was the Jewish minority. It was really a microscopic minority, less than one percent of the population, and it really wasn't um, a debate for everybody. Not everybody was thinking about it, but certain key elites were thinking about it. And it was it, the whole question was bound up with the schools, with education. Um, you know, just as a, as a side as a side note, historians have been loath to look at the history of education, and I have a number of different theories for why that is. Uh, at least in the United States, I mean, I don't know how it is um, in the rest of the Anglophone world. Um, 
But in the United States, the historical profession has really been loath to look at the history of, of, of schools. And you know, I thought I need to dedicate at least one or two chapters of the book to the debate over religion and schools in, in Germany. It's my own experience. Nothing gets people riled up more than, the, than what's going on in their kids' schools. Mm-hmm. If you if you if you want to if you want to see a political fight, uh, then you 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 go you go to um, you know a parent teacher association meeting. <laughs> you know, I mean, you you people people get uh, really I think crazed when they think something is happening in their schools that's going to negatively affect their children. And so, what started out as kind of these uh, regional level and local level fights in the 1920s about schools eventually became in the 1920s uh, a national issue. And I'll just kind of kind of briefly uh, try to summarize what the, what the issue was. In Germany, in you know after the creation of this this republic known as the Weimar Republic in 1919 one of the things that the the legislators decided in the constitutional convention was that they would uh, allow the various german regions to decide on educational policy and in particular the policy of how uh, religious education should take place. There was no strict separation of church and state. So mo- the majority of, of German schools had some type of religious instruction. Uh, it depended on the locale, you know, what that instruction would be. If you were in a predominantly Catholic area, the public schools that you, uh, the children would have attended uh, would have had Catholic instruction. Um, in Protestant areas, uh, Protestant. Um, in mixed areas, for example, in southwestern Germany, uh, an innovative system was created where the uh, Protestant and Catholic children would be together for most of the day, and then in the few hours of the week where they had religious instruction, they would be separated, taken out of the classroom and, and um, given instruction in their respective religious traditions. The question became for, uh, for Germans, you know, whether this was a viable situation. Uh, many people started arguing that Germany would never really be completely unified as a people. Um, and again, there are all these, you know, all these, um, Everyone was saying that Germany was divided and conflicted and riven by strife. So some people said, look, we, what we really need to do to lay the foundations for unity and consensus in our country is to create a unified school system. So uh, the legislators decided in 1924 and 1925 to think about how to do this, how to create a unified uh, school policy. 
and all the conflicting visions of how it should look came out. Um, extremely divisive debates. Some people were saying, no, we, you know, we need, we need to have the status quo because that protects the rights of religious families. Uh, other people were saying, uh, socialists were saying, what we really need is a complete separation of state, unified school system. Uh, let's not have religion in the schools at all. It's just, it's just a way to uh, guarantee the, the divisions of our society. And other people said, look, why don't we um, create a system like, like in southwestern Germany, where it's mostly mixed education, but there's people are separate, Christians are separated out. Well, Jews were largely left out of this mix. And what was very apparent to me looking at these, at these debates was that many people were arguing that there was something valuable in Christian religious instruction that could prepare Germans for political leadership. Uh, and there was something pernicious about Jewish religious education, something in the religion itself of Judaism that uh, was destructive. So there was no consensus about whether Judaism itself as a religion had a place in German society. Um, you know, to put it to put it in today's terms, you know, whether Judaism belonged to Germany or belonged in Germany at all, and it came out of this debate over the schools. Of course, anti-Semitism was you know debated in in lots of other venues too. Um, but that's really where I saw um, a key flashpoint is is in how Germans envision the future education of their youth. Um, and, and, you know, some, some of the people who were involved in this, uh, school debate went on to become, to become Nazis. And, um, so it was, it was, a, it's a key, it was a key moment that is not often discussed in the literature on the rise of Nazism or the collapse of, of Weimar democracy. A really interesting argument. Oh, by the way, by the way, sorry. sorry. By the way, I sorry. I just want to add one thing: is that it, the, the debate was not resolved. Sure. So no legislation came out of this. Right. Right. And, and, and that it just kind of was was suppressed. And that really sets the tone for for what comes after 1945. But before I come to that, um, one of the really interesting points you make in this discussion of of the debates over what position Jews have in German society is that. What happens in the immediate period after 1933, that is this passivity of the vast bulk of Christian Germans in the face of Jewish persecution, is a trade-off because they think that they'll, send, they'll basically sell the Jews down the river as a means of achieving this Christian unity that Hitler had promised. Am, am I explaining your argument right? Uh, uh, more or less. Right. So, so, so I'll, I'll just nuance it a little bit. Um, and I think that this is, you know, I've, I've been invited to speak about uh, my book uh, 
you know, in a lot of different venues um, after 2016, uh, after the election of Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in part because of this um, this phenomenon that I that I traced, which was the the rationale mm-hmm. that conservative politicians and conservative uh, thinkers in Germany gave for supporting Hitler in 1933. Um, it's not exactly true to say that they supported Hitler in order to get the Christian unity that they that they wanted so much. Um, but it was a kind of, of course, Hitler did talk about Christian unity and, and his rhetoric was, was, was full of that kind of language. But uh, really, the trade-off that I, that I traced in the book was that Christian conservatives were really terrified in the lead up to 1933. What were they terrified about? Um, they were terrified that, maybe terrified is, you know, I don't love that language, but they, they were fearful that the trajectory of their country was toward secularization and the withering of resources for the churches. Um, fewer and fewer Germans were going to church. Right? The pews were emptying out. Um, the funds, the monies that Christian conservatives depended on from the state were dwindling. So when I say that what they, the monies they depended on, um, uh, the churches were mainly funded through state collected taxes. And this, this is true, by the way, still today in Germany. Absolutely, I know that. Uh, <laughs> yes, you know. <laughs> so, so as the uh, overall tax base shrank, and the overall budget that was being allocated to churches strength. That meant less and less money for Christian education in the schools, going back to the schools again. Um, and all kinds of different things. So what they were afraid of was that there was kind of a, a mood swing in Germany away from Christianity, and they were afraid of material resources dwindling. And what Hitler promised in 19, well, really um, from the late 20s into the early 30s, promised that he was going to shore up resources for the Christians, for the Christian churches. And now many of these Christian conservatives were not racist per se. Some of them were. Okay, some of them were. Some of them were rabid anti Semites. Some of them uh, gladly. Uh, uh, embraced a kind of racial ideology. But I would say that for the majority of Christian conservatives, the the racial vision of the Nazis was actually repellent. Um, It didn't accord with Christian theology, certainly. I mean, you you could do some gymnastics to, to to make it work and, and there was there was a, a wing of the Protest, of Protestant Christianity in Germany that tried to do these gymnastics uh, but for the majority of 
Christian conservatives, it was, racial ideology was, was repellent. But they were willing to look the other way. And I have, and I, and I found some, um, some sources that really showed, showed this quite clearly, that they were willing to sell off the Jews and, uh, to, to look the other way with Nazi-led anti-Jewish legislation if they could secure those improved resources for the Christian churches. Um, but if that, if, if the source, if, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. You explain passivity really well that, 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 that they, they're willing to look the other way, but what about compliance? What about active compliance? Is that also a function of trying to get what they want from the regime? Yes, I think I think it goes hand in hand because what the what the Nazi regime demanded was uh, not only was, was was really not passivity, but active complicity. Um, the, not, the Nazis had worries of their own, um, even after 1933, even after the um, the what was really the coup of March 1933 and the establishment of of a dictatorship, even after that. What I try to show in the book is that the Nazi regime remained worried about a lack of consensus in Germany for their vision. And their number one priority was to win over conservatives. And if they couldn't win them over with logic and uh, persuasion, then they would, they would do it through pressure and coercion. So the Christian conservatives who you know, were willing initially to sign on saw themselves come, on, come under increasing pressure to not just look the other way, but actively embrace key components of Nazi ideology, in particular, the component of racial thinking. So yes, some, some, some Christian conservatives were willing to go quite far and be quite complicit um, in, in, in order to secure their own, uh, their own material interests. Um, eventually, this was taken too far for many. Um, especially after 1936 and 1937, uh, many Christian conservatives said, said this is too far. Um, and they didn't openly, most of them did not openly resist. Many of them continued to be, you know, kind of um, uh, either superficially or really actively complicit. Um, but um, there was a growing sense key argument that I make in the book. It's a growing sense, especially after 1936, 1937, that uh, these, the two th these two visions, Nazism and Christian conservatism, were actually not compatible, could not be squared. Before we come to the, the post-war period, the book has a, a chapter that kind of splits the book into, that is, of course, the Nazi period when it's really during the Nazi period, in fact, that the individuals who had fought against each other 
espousing their their conflicting visions over how best to organize the economy or what's the best position of cultural minorities in Germany. And before they begin to come together as, as partners after 1945, that they're actually already doing so during the Nazi period itself. That this is really, there's almost a, a moment, a, a wake-up call for most of these people that basically the horrors of Nazism have, have said to them, we need to get our act together here and work together. Can you maybe just say a little bit about the, the, the wartime networks, about these individuals, how it is that they keep in contact and what it is that is motivating them to, to, to come together as partners after 1945? Yeah, um, I'm so glad you asked that. So this, my argument about that is totally bound up with my overall argument in the book about the roots of political and social stabilization in Germany. So the in, in that Americanization thesis that we talked about earlier, or the or the Westernization thesis that we talked about earlier, really the narrative always starts in 1945. That it was either the arrival of the Americans or the shock of the defeat in 1945 that began the whole process of stabilization. And what I wanted wanted to do in this book is to go back. Uh, where can we see the roots of the stabilization? Where can we see the beginnings of the process? And really where I started to, to see it um, was beginning in 1936, 1937, but then especially during the war, where you have underground... You know, like call it underground um, networks. They weren't always underground, but often uh, networks of individuals who, in the 1920s and early 1930s, felt that they did not see eye at eye, eye to eye at all. Felt that they had irreconcilable differences. Coming together to talk with one another and think about ways to lay the ground for the day after. Uh, what would happen after Hitler. And the networks that you ask about uh, formed in two different places. Okay, One was inside Germany. Uh, these are the underground networks. Um, very difficult for a historian to find because of the source issue. Um, the the nature of the networks was underground. That meant that they didn't publish things often. Um, but where the other group um, that we can see, we can trace quite clearly in their in their um, evolution of thinking, uh, was abroad, outside of Germany. And so it was very important for me uh, to look at the emigres the people who had left Germany at one point or another during the Nazi regime. Some people left uh, immediately after 1933. Um, for example, Wilhelm Rupke, the economist, uh, was one of these who left, um, went to Turkey at first, and then a few years later ended up in, in Switzerland, in Geneva. Um, others left a little bit later, uh, 19. 
1936 or 1937 or 1938. And they went all over. They went to uh, the Netherlands. They went to um, Great Britain. They went to the United States. Now, I, should, I think I should mention here that I, I leave out a key group. And that key group is the German communists. Because some of these some of these emigrants went to the Soviet Union. And the the German communists uh are tell listeners why I did this. German communists after nineteen thirty three, they were the first they were the first group that was attacked by the Nazis, first group to be suppressed and stripped of their constitutional rights, driven underground. They desperately after 1933 tried to form kind of a unified front with German socialists, the social Democrats to fight against Nazism. But very importantly, the German social Democrats who are, you know, still the second largest party after the Nazis, a uh, key party, they adamantly refused to have anything to do with the German communists in a common fight against Nazism. Um, so the answer was no to the requested partnership, the requested alliance. German Social Democrats, on the other hand, were willing, as the 1930s wore on, to cooperate with liberals, with conservatives, even increasingly Christian conservatives in the common fight against Nazism. So in terms of the, the networks that I, that I traced, that developed, um, really it was all of the different conflict groups that I mapped out in the first part of the book, in the 1920s and 1930s, with the sole exception of the communists. Uh, and those and those communist emigre networks, you know, all developed in the East, you know, in the Soviet Union, uh, in Moscow, um, but elsewhere in the in in the West, you um, you see all kinds of networks develop, and these were the networks that ultimately, I argue, after 1945, coalesced into a baseline common vision for post-Nazi Germany. I want to maybe address that bit by talking about something that I noticed in the book. The way I see it is it's about how forming, formerly warring factions ultimately come, become partners in Reconstruction after 1945. But what I see as what how do I say this? What you describe as compromise sometimes read to me as a as a climb down. It it always seemed to be one vision that mm -hmm. won out. So the mm -hmm. individuals themselves, yes, they became partners, but in almost every issue it was like, okay, well, one of the one of the people who was arguing one side of the argument in the Weimar Republic, well now the other person has come around their point of view. So Ernst Frenkel comes around to the idea of an independent ju uh, judiciary, um, mm -hmm. the idea of cultural minority rights, 
Um, the guy who was advocating the more inclusive vision, Hans-Joachim Schweppes, um, his vision wins out. Do you think that's a fair criticism? A criticism of, of, of the argument? Um, no, I, I, think it's, I think it's a fair comment. I don't, mm. I don't see it as, um, uh, as undermining at all what, sure. I'm, what I'm trying to map out. Um, compromises are usually not 50-50 splits. Sure. Right. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a common um, it's a it's a common truism, to, you know, to say that in a compromise, neither party is is happy. Okay. Um, but that doesn't but that doesn't mean uh, neither party is completely happy with the results, right? That's what people say. Um, but that doesn't mean that. Each party is getting you know, exactly half of what they wanted, mm-hmm. right? Um, so yes, and it, it depended on the specific question, but oftentimes one party was sacrificing much more in terms of its earlier platform than the other party. So, you know, some readers of my book have said, look, I mean, wow, it really looks like the Social Democrats were losing the most out of all of these compromises that they were making. That's what I thought when I read it. Um, and I think it's absolutely true. Um, I, wouldn't, I, I wouldn't deny that in the least. The uh, Social Democrats um, gave up some of the key platforms that they held in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, the first, the first people to really um, uh, point this out loudly were the 1960s student protest generation, uh, who who looked back on their their who had become their teachers. I mean, the now older Social Democrats of Germany, um, and said, "Look, look at look at what you did. I mean, if we if we go back to your 1920s writings, we see this kind of radical vision for the future that was so." Uh, so amazing, and then you just gave it up after 1945. Uh, what happened? They were willing to give up, for example, the call for uh, the collectivization of the means of production, something that fundamental to social democracy, namely you know, the, the Marx vision um, of. Um, uh, workers' ownership of the means of production, and to give up. They were also willing to give up their platform of the complete separation of church and state. So that was part of their you know, compromise with with uh, conservatives. Um, they were willing to give up, as you mentioned, the uh, opposition to constitutional judicial review. Uh, this is something that, that Social Democrats were were unbending with in the 1920s. Uh, they, they thought that if the, the courts got the right to strike down legislation, then they then they would they would impede the progress toward social democracy. Um, and they were willing to give that up. So on at least those three major platforms, uh, 
um, Social Democrats uh, conceded. They conceded. Now, they gained other things. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, Germany did become a more pluralistic society. Mm-hmm. Um, they, uh, you know, but, but in a lot of ways, they, they were the losers of this story. Um, and, I, and I think that's the, the 1960s generation were very quick to point that out. Uh, and they felt that they, they, they looked at their elder generation of the left and felt a deep sense of betrayal. I, I think this is really one of the book's strengths because it really forces us to reconsider where we are today. You talk there about, and indeed in the book, about social democrats compromising. Well, this is a massive theme in Germany today. I mean, a lot of people think that this is a party without an identity precisely because over the last 20, 30 years, it has compromised on so many of its of its principles. But also, this book was published in 2017. And if I'm right, it may have been just before we began to see the cracks emerging in in certain aspects of this post-war consensus. I mean, the idea that Germany is an open and tolerant country, that's at least up for discussion now since the... um, since the refugee crisis of 2015, um, sure. conceptions of what it means to be a German is now, they're now discussing it. Indeed, even many, many people are asking whether a 1933 beckons again for Germany. And in a way, they're going back to Weimar to look for the lessons, to see whether the lessons of the past have ever really been learned. I was just wondering that, would your conclusions have been any different if it was written say in the last two years it's hmm. hmm. a great question um you know i'll answer it in two different ways the, the first way is that you know i wasn't living in germany uh, while I was writing the bulk of the book, I mean, I researched the book in in Germany um, for at least two years. Uh, I was mostly in the late 2000s, um, but I wrote the book primarily in uh, Barack Obama's United States, mm-hmm. and we were already having the the debates about whether we were living through a Weimar moment. Um, after 2008, from 2008 to 2016, uh, polarization was a word that became extremely common in uh, American journalism during these years. I mean, the um, the really extreme reaction on the right wing to the presidency of Obama. Um, I moved to North Carolina in 2011 and uh, to immerse myself in the culture here, uh, listened to a lot of uh, radio, um, especially right-wing uh, radio. It was just after the Tea Party revolution that took over the North Carolina state legislature. Uh, and I and I saw the kind of uh, extreme opposition, um, sometimes you know, bordering on hatred or 
crossing on over the line to hatred of the Obama administration and the Democrats in general, liberals in general. So I, you know, it put me in a Weimar mood, let's say, as I was as I was writing the book. I also saw the attempts of the Democratic establishment in the United States to to compromise and to stress bipartisanship. Um, you know, you see uh, with the decision to nominate Hillary Clinton in 2016, a an attempt, of course it was close, because the party itself was divided between whether to take a more con- confrontational view represented by you know, Bernie Sanders and the more compromising view represented by the Clintons. Um, you know, you saw how willing Democrats were to give up key principles. You know, this started in the 1990s with with the new you know, so-called New Democrats. Mm-hmm. You know, Bill Clinton's Bill Clinton's uh, willingness to compromise with more conservative visions for um, the devolution of the welfare state, etc. And, you know, I don't I don't like to draw, you know, perfect parallels, but there is something to the current debates on the left in the United States and in Britain and in Germany that say, look, we really need to revisit whether the spirit of compromise is a viable path forward. You know, um, there are moments in history when the national mood is yearning for compromise and for consensus. And there are times in history when the the, the mood of society is, um, is bracing for a fight. And it seems to be one of those times right now where we're bracing for a fight, where we're ready. We're, there's enthusiasm for the fight. There's enthusiasm for the conflict. There's enthusiasm for reanimating conflicting visions where one will win, where one will uh, win out over over the other. And that's where I I really see the, the parallels between the story that I want to tell about the Weimar Republic and today. It's not. It's not in the simplistic, uh, you know, um, identification of Trump with Hitler. Mm-hmm. I mean that that the time that 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 moment has died. Right. Mm-hmm. We're we're not doing that anymore because it was a stupid thing to do uh, to to compare Trump to to Hitler and to to compare tr- uh, Trump supporters with Nazis. Um, because they're not. They're obviously different. But what's similar, I think, is the mood. Um, that people are ready for for a resumption of radical political conflict. And that, you know, that might not be a bad thing. I don't take a stand whether or not that's a bad thing. But as a as a historian, I I do see similarities but you see to compare like germany i think is a very very interesting example because 
you outlined just there uh, about the different moments in American history where there are, there are times for conflict and there are times for compromise. And by and large, since 1945, it has been the latter in the case of Germany. Whereas in America, in the United Kingdom, there have been these moments, almost like a safety valve, where there's issues about race that come up and these discussions then come up. And it's in a way, it's like these the people in the, the country, they get it out of their system. They have an open debate about something. And then they decide what position that they want to they want to adopt. That's not really been the case in Germany. That this consensus has just sort of existed more or less unperturbed since 1945. So, if I I had the ultimate faith in this idea of the German consensus on this willingness to compromise, you know the idea that German politics is always boring. They only want stability, right? Sure. But since 2015, that idea has just been thrown on its head. And it just got me thinking about this idea of yeah. comparison. In a way, maybe these moments of, of conflict are, are necessary for people to get it out of their system. And, and maybe in a way, and I don't know if you'd agree with this, was the consensus maybe too stable? Was it too good? So what I would say is that First of all, you're right that since 2015, there has been a type of polarization of German political discourse that we have not seen since 1945 on kind of fundamental issues. Um, and yet, it's also a caricature, perhaps, to say that before 2015, from 1945 to 2015, uh, everything in German politics was was boring and conflict-free, and everyone was just uh, getting along uh, in a kind of divine spirit of of comedy and consensus. Um, so, I, I, what I'll try to do is just explain a little bit more what I mean by conflict in the book. So when, when I say that there was conflict in Weimar and consensus in post-war Germany, post-war what became West Germany, the Federal Republic, what I really mean is that in the 1920s, there, were, there, were, there was conflict on key issues. What do I mean by that? I, what I mean is that On certain issues like how to school children, how to structure the economy, how to interpret the Constitution, how to separate the powers of government, two competing that seemed irreconcilable emerged. Okay. After 1945, Really, really, it was after 1947 when the country started to divide. Sure, there were going to be continued, uh, there were continued differences of opinion on certain things. Uh, you can't have a liberal democracy without different parties, for example, right? And parties. This is this is you know we're we're not yet in the messianic age right 
where there are no distinctions between people. Um, there was going to be opposition. Um, how to move forward in the Cold War, how to deal with the Eastern Bloc, how to um, uh, you know, deal with the country's Nazi past, all kinds of different things. But on the key issues, on those you know, separation of powers, on um, major, you know, whether whether you should have a uh, um, a uh, socialistic economy or a free market-based economy, um, all of those things that I described in the in the first half of the book, those issues there was consensus. And the only reason I'm, he I'm hesitant to, you know, diagnose today's Germany of 2018 as being in crisis is that I don't see those fundamental, the fundamental components of the original consensus under threat yet. I the, don't see it under threat. The commitment even, to cultural pluralism? Well, that may be one one thing that 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 might be under threat, but still, the majority, mm -hmm. the vast majority of Germans, are for a pluralistic society. They don't want they don't want Germany to become again monochromatic mm -hmm. or completely homogenous. That is not what the opinion polls say that, that most Germans want. Now, what we do see is that most Germans want want. Uh, stricter border control. They, they, they don't want so many immigrants at once. That's something that, that is, is obvious and apparent. Um, but pluralistic society, um, I think something that still most Germans are committed to. I think uh, most Germans are, almost all Germans are committed to ha you know, having a constitutional court. Uh, all Germans are no, not all Germans, but a, still a vast majority of Germans are committed to a market-based capitalist system. Um, now, yes, new fault lines can open up on key issues, but I don't yet see the kind of widespread conflict on key issues being there today. Um, you know, even even the, for example, Europe. You know, the commitment to be the uh, to having Germany being part of a supranational entity called Europe, the European Union. Still, most Germans are completely committed to that. Even even the alternative, you know, alternative for Deutschland, the AFD, this insurgent you know, populist party. Even they don't speak out against the concept of Europe, right? They don't want to draw Germany from Europe. Um, and this was, this is of course a key conflict in the interwar years, you know, whether Germany should, um, should have an internationalist spirit or a nationalist one. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I, I, I'm not a political scientist. I don't pretend to what's going to happen, but as of today, I see fault lines beginning, but not nowhere near like they were in 1920s. On that positive note, uh, I want to bring the conversation to a close. You've been really, really kind with your time. 
Um, the book is called Lions and Lambs, Conflict in Weimar and the Creation of Post-Nazi Germany. It is absolutely integral reading for anybody seeking to understand the connections between the first and second democracies and indeed provides a useful lens through which to view what's going on in Germany's um, in Germany today. Uh, Noah Strutt, many thanks for the uh, for your time and good luck in the future. Thank you so much, Darren. It's been a pleasure talking with you.